Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'd like to talk to you tonight about the Buddha's recipe for happiness. So according to the story of the uh, Buddha, he had uh, become enlightened. And then after that point, uh, he spent some time enjoying his enlightenment, basically standing around the bow tree where he was enlightened. (laughs) But he didn't really think about teaching other people. He didn't really think other people would be interested or would really know what he was talking about, frankly. And then he was sort of convinced by a uh, visiting deva, uh, sort of spirit angel, that there were some people who would get it. There were some people who would be interested. So he, sh- he, should, he should do this. So then he set out on walking along to uh, go and teach. But the first pe- person he encountered could tell there's something different about him. There's something noble in his bearing, something different about this guy. But he didn't know what, so he asked him, so who are you? What are you? Who are you? And he said, I am awakened. And the guy said, huh. All right, good luck. And he kept going on. (laughs) So then, you know, he changed his uh, tactics a little bit of how to explain to people. Um, But really his, his motivation to teach uh, people, he said, was because he understood that all beings wish to be happy. So all people, all animals, all of us are seeking happiness. And yet, all of us are going about it in misguided ways, shall we say. So seeing this, if you understand this, then out of compassion, you know, the natural thing would be like, oh, yeah, okay, let me, let me give you some ideas about how you could do it differently. Like, let me explain to you how... Uh, I see things, how it seems to be, the truth of how things are, basically. So you can imagine like, if you see someone trying to do something and keeping on banging their head against a wall, and you know exactly how to do it, hopefully, eventually, your sense of compassion would uh, overcome you and you would actually show them the correct way to do it, right? Like sometimes you see someone trying to push a door and it really says pull, right? You know? <laughs> and they're pushing, they're pushing, but you've read the sign that says pull, right? So... Uh, so then hopefully eventually you say, like, oh, try pulling it. And then, oh, okay, pulling it. All right, that's the way in. Right? So similarly, all of us are actually going about our lives in these different ways, trying to be happy, and yet going about it in ways that actually don't lead to happiness. But we don't really see why that's so. Like, we don't understand exactly what that's about. So let's talk first about what our usual recipe is for happiness, our usual strategies for becoming happy people. So number one is usually getting what we want. Right? So we try to get what we want. We try to figure out what we want, and then we try to get it. So this includes things that we want, uh, experiences that we want, people that we want around us, ways that we want these people then to act, uh, who are then around us, right? 
the way that we would like uh, external circumstances to be, including the temperature uh, of the rooms that we're in, um, the way that people view us, uh, you know, any number of factors, really. Like, we just go about trying to get what we want. So now the flip side, of course, is trying to get rid of what we don't want. So trying to avoid people we don't want to see or hang around or who say things that are displeasing to us. Trying to avoid uh, any kind of experience that's unpleasing to us. So that includes uh, if it's too cold or it's too hot, uh, if something is not enjoyable to us, uh, if something doesn't smell so good, etc., etc. Right. So actually all the sense stores, usually we're spending a lot of energy machinating to keep things the way that we want and push away the things that we don't want. So how well does this work? So sometimes it works a little bit, right? I'll give you that. Sometimes it works a little bit, and for sometimes for a little bit of time, it feels like things are lining up. This is like our day. The bus comes on time. You know, there's a seat for us at the right place. We like the companion next to us in the bus. We go to work, and everyone's nice to us, you know, on and on, right? But even if things line up for one day, one hour, one moment, the trouble is that you can't really keep them like that forever because everything is always changing. So this is one of the clues that the Buddha gives us, is like when you actually pay attention in your experience to what is true about reality, about life, about the way things are, you can see that everything is always changing. So everything in your experience of sight, everything in your experience of sound, everything in your experience of smell, everything that goes through your mind, your experience of the body. So all of it is changing, 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 so quickly actually, so quickly. So you've noticed this uh, perhaps when you're sitting here and you're sitting. And consider all the different emotions and mind states that have gone through your body, your mind, your heart, Uh, even just today, even just one sitting, all the thoughts that have gone through your head, they come, they go, right? And this includes the noble, beautiful ones, the insights that you plan to write books about, uh, the terrible, hellacious ones, uh, the memories from the past, your plans for the future, all of it. It comes, it goes, it comes, it goes, it comes, it goes. And there's nowhere to stand on in all of this. There's nothing permanent to hold. So then this strategy for finding lasting happiness in the world of changing experience is really doomed, isn't it? And yet we try, right? So we try and, you know, if you say that your life has, say, like 10 main areas, and you could name them, like maybe your uh, job, your relationship, your health, uh, your friends, your family, your financial life, uh, you could say your automotive life, you know, uh, your uh, connection to nature, your creative life, right? All these different areas. And you'll notice that at different times, some of them up and some of them are down, right? So sometimes things are going really well at work and sometimes a bunch of your friends have moved away. Sometimes things are going really well with your family, but then sometimes your health is not so good. So our strategy for happiness implicitly is like, let's get everything to 10 and then hold it there, right? 
period. Like, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to take it all to 10, and I'm going to hold it there for the rest of my life, right? And it's really, uh, you know, it's very poignant because it's so doomed because it never works out that way, you know? I mean, even if for one, um, you know, one period of time, everything is there at 10, sometimes even at that moment, because in some way we know this is true, this impermanence, right? Like we're ready for the other shoe to fall, you know? We're ready for it to start going up and down again, right? So then what can be a strategy for happiness be? You know, what, what, can we, what can we do in this world of changing cir- circumstance? Where is there for us to rest? So the Buddha actually described many different kinds of happiness that we can find in our life. And they're kind of progressive stages of happiness uh, that there is for us. So I wanted to go through them with you and talk about each stage. And in each progressive stage, it sort of includes the previous stage too. So the first one is actually, some, there is something to be said for the happiness of sense pleasures, right? So as much as you know, I was just uh, you know, describing that as a doomed strategy, in the moment that you get something that is pleasant to you, right, you like it. it there is some pleasure in that. Now the trouble is that most of the time, we have a hard time just being with it for what it is, enjoying it and letting it go. So then the mind actually leans into trying to keep that there, in some way, right? Example, uh, some of you here might be fans of pizza, such as what we had at lunch. Uh, If not, you can substitute any other food that you've had here that you liked, right? So it may be that you got some pizza, you thought about what was like the appropriate amount to take given how many people seem to be around, right? You go to sit down, you take a bite, and it's actually really good. So you actually really enjoy it. And then immediately, the mind starts leaning into whether you could get a second piece. Right? Like, will there be enough pizza to get a second piece? Will it look bad if I get it now? <laughs> should I get it later? Right? Uh, should I walk by like I'm getting tea and then take it? It'll look worse. Right? <laughs> the machinating about this. Right? So meanwhile, the actual piece of pizza that you have, in fact, deemed good and tasty... Uh, is gone because while you have been eating that, you have been not paying attention to it, right? Like we miss the actual enjoyment that is there to be had in the moment because we're off in our mind, right, on another trip. But still, there is some pleasure to be had in the senses. Uh, So from beautiful sights, beautiful sounds, from actually feeling comfortable in the body and in the mind, right? There's some pleasure to be had in the world from that, even though it's not lasting pleasure. So the Buddha talked about this too. So what is it that is actually the cause and condition that supports us in being able to enjoy this or being able to have this kind of pleasure in our life? And it might surprise you to, say that, to see that he said that uh, purity of conduct was actually a main cause for being able to have this kind of sense pleasure in our life. So purity of conduct, so what that means is for example, cultivation of generosity. So actually, this is an act of non-greed, non-clinging. Right? So acting with a generous heart. Also, purity of conduct means uh, following the ethical precepts. So actually living your life in a way that doesn't harm other people and doesn't cause harm to yourself. 
So this is also living in harmony with the way things are. So you know, we went over the precepts uh, in the beginning, the first night of the retreat, um, about not killing or destroying other living beings. So not taking things that are not yours or not offered to you. About avoiding misconduct or harming yourself and others with sexuality, sexual energy and sexual activity. About wise speech. So in this case, it's about speaking what's true. So avoiding lying. Avoiding slander, uh, gossip. Avoiding things that are meant to be divisive. Avoiding abusive speech. Even avoiding what's called idle chatter as, as part of this uh, wise speech. And then also avoiding any kinds of intoxicants or drugs or drink that will actually cloud your mind and that will cause you to then break any of the former uh, precepts. So actually do harm that you later will regret. So how can this be related to actual sense pleasures? Like how is this related to pizza and sunshine and nice uh, sights and sounds? So there's something that's called the bliss of blamelessness. So when your mind, your conscience is actually at ease, you know, when you actually don't have to feel regret about things, when you actually have been living in harmony and in kindness from a sense of interconnection, right? from this sense of understanding that our lives are all connected, then our mind's much more at peace, like we're actually much more able to be present with whatever is here, even in the sense doors through experience. Now, generosity is actually the opposite of that mind state I was describing in the pizza story, right? So in that pizza story, it's like a leaning towards, a clinging, a greed, right? This machinating of the mind, right? So this stuff actually takes us away from being able to just be present with how things are. So happiness of sense pleasures. So there are some happiness to be had there. Now here in retreat also, there's a way in which we're uh, experiencing, even if you feel like, well, I'm not really engaged with people so much to be like overtly generous, there's a way in which we were experiencing a lot of renunciation. So you've actually given up a lot of your usual comfort, right? Your usual things of life. Your familiar uh, place and your familiar place to sleep and things like that. And some would say that that is like actually the recipe for suffering, right? Giving up the stuff that you want. But my experience of being in retreat is that once you kind of get over the initial hump of maybe like missing something or wanting something, there actually is this real beauty to the simplicity of life. Like it's good to to notice in the moments in which you actually feel very content here. Now there may be many moments in which you do not feel very content here. Understood, right? But the moments that you actually feel content, particularly when it's a very simple moment. So for example, if you're doing walking meditation and you just notice like, oh, I'm actually feeling like there's a lot of just happiness and peace and contentment. Just notice that, you know. Or some moment if you're just sitting here or even outside or something and you feel this sense of happiness, notice that, you know. 
I think it's very powerful because it actually undercuts this idea that we need a lot of stuff, we need a lot of money, we need everything to be like this in order to be happy, right? Because in that moment, you don't have that much, you know? Maybe theoretically you do. Maybe theoretically, you know, you're actually very wealthy and you have a lot of stuff. But in that moment, if you're just walking back and forth very simply, you're just sitting here outside, right? That sense of contentment is not actually dependent on all that stuff, right? So you can explore all of this that I'm saying and see if it's true for yourself, right? Uh, we invite, uh, invite skepticism as long as you investigate it through your own experience with mindfulness, right? Check it out and see if it seems true or not. Now, a story regarding this is, uh, actually, uh, we had an ordination here at Spirit Rock uh, a couple of months ago, I think in October, right? And it was an ordination of Buddhist nuns, uh, which is actually a very rare occurrence. And it was done in this very hall, and in fact, you can see in the hall there's like a certain pattern that uh, is like a it's kind of an octagon. You can't really see that well from the cushions, but you see like a different kind of wood here and back there. So that had become this uh, sema, which is like a sacred circle. And in the middle of that, there were uh, several dozen monks and nuns, Buddhist monks and nuns there. And then as lay people, we were all on the outs- outside of this and the uh, spirit rock teachers and many other supporters. And I went through a ritual of ordination for three women who were joining the Order of Buddhist Nuns. Now, for, for those of us who uh, you know, feel like it's a lot of renunciation to be on retreat, I think it's always helpful to reflect on the life of people who are ordained. So, uh, you know, we're trying to follow these five precepts, right? And they actually follow, uh, I believe the monks, it's like 227 precepts. And for the nuns, it's like 300 and something, right? Uh, Very detailed um, ones. Among the things that they give up in order to enter the order, uh, their hair, right? Shave their head. Uh, Their name, so they get a different name given to them. They give up regular clothes, so they just wear this robe, you know, basically orange sheet, essentially, right? Uh, They give up control over food, They can only take what's offered in their bowl for food. They give up money. So that there gives up, you know, agency in all kinds of ways, right? Uh, Oh, yeah, they're celibate, right? Give up uh, sexual relationships. Give up all entertainment, music, movies, uh, etc., etc., right? Hardcore renunciation, these people, right? And yet, my experience has been that these are actually some of the happiest human beings I have ever met in my life. You know, and it's it's actually so stunning to see that. It's very inspiring to see that too. So you know, renounce and enjoy is what the the saying about that is. Renounce and enjoy. You know, the usual movement of mind is like get more stuff and you'll be happy. But actually, you know, try it out. Renounce and enjoy. So desires surely arise here, in for monks and nuns, and then you know, there's this, another saying that's like. Drive all desires into one. You know, all of these different desires that arise, like I want this, I want this, I want that, I want that, right? They're all actually some uh, manifestation of, in some way, like our larger desire to be, have unification, be one, have contentment, right? Have peace. 
at the moment that we perceive there's me and this other thing that I want, there's like a duality, right? And then there's a struggle, etc., right? So in these cases, renounce and enjoy means like these different desires come up, but you don't get fooled by the sort of insert photo here uh, card that goes in with that desire, but you know, like, you know, keep it focused, right? Keep it focused on the true, true desire for peace, for happiness, for freedom. So happiness of sense pleasures, and leading to that is cultivating generosity and the bliss of blamelessness. Now another related uh, teaching of the Buddha around happiness, which I believe we haven't gotten to in our Brahma Viharas yet, but we probably will get to, is about the ability to cultivate a happiness that you have, regardless of whether you are happy, but when you see someone else is happy. So this is a quality called appreciative joy, sympathetic joy. So cultivating the quality of being happy when you see someone else being happy. So this is as opposed to being jealous when someone else is happy, right? Or being resentful, or having it be focused on yourself and what you do or don't have. Right? So the simplest version of this, I would say, is if you see like a, a dog wagging its tail or a bird that seems to be happy, or even a little kid sometimes who's very happy, there's something contagious about that. Right? Like you can notice that and uh, feel a connection with that and allow yourself to become happy just from seeing that other being happy. And you don't even have to be happy about what they're happy about. Right? So, for example, the dog might be happy because it found an old piece of uh, muffin on the ground. Right? <laughs> This makes dogs very happy, right? Uh, and, uh, or, you know, like old chewing gum or something like that, right? And you, that might not make you so happy to find. Um, but the dog is so happy, and he's wagging his tail, and you can just connect to that sense of happiness, right? Regardless of what it is that he likes, right? So it's like, oh, you're happy? I'm happy for your happiness. May your happiness continue. May your gladness increase. May you always be so, so happy like this. So actually intentionally cultivating this wish, this state of mind, this state of heart, when we see someone else who's happy. So this is something that you can do. This is something that you can cultivate too. So next level of happiness. Happiness of concentration. So the happiness of concentration is related to the fact that we usually have a very dispersed energy of our mind-body systems as human beings. Right? But actually there's a lot of power available to us. There's a lot of power that's available if we can actually collect that. Right? So you may have noticed this already uh, somewhat from the collectiveness that can come from sitting, from walking, from being on retreat. Now don't try and judge your practice also, because you may or may not know sort of what level you have come to in this. Right? Your own ideas about it are different than what's actually happening. But it's possible to have a lot of happiness, a lot of peace, a lot of joy, simply from collecting the energy of the mind and the body together. Right? From not being as distracted as we usually are. 
And this can happen just very naturally as we start to settle, as we start to collect, as we start to uh, connect in a focused way with whatever it is that's happening right now. So this is actually described in uh, all the descriptions of meditation, in fact, of different levels of joy, of rapture, in fact, that are available through meditative practice. And in fact, the levels of joy that are available basically blow any of the sense pleasures out of the water in terms of uh, joy and happiness. So anything in the realm of you know, sex or food or, you know, anything you could imagine as the most intense pleasure you can receive through your senses, the kind of happiness and joy available through this collectedness of the mind and the body uh, surpasses that. Believe it or not. You've heard it here. Right? Uh, and then continues to deepen, Right. Now, sometimes this manifests for people when they're meditating in the beginning in ways that actually feel somewhat uncomfortable. So it could be that there's an experience in the body of like chills or strange energy releases uh, or of uh, goosebumps or something like that. There's many different ways this can manifest. And sometimes these are actually considered manifestations of joy, of rapture, uh, of the energy of the mind and body collecting And the system really likes this. So our system likes this, and then there's like these discharges of energy that can happen. Now that intensity of it can also kind of mature and deepen into even deeper levels of joy, too. So the happiness of a collected mind and heart, the happiness of concentration. Now the next kind of happiness that I talk about is the happiness of insight. And this is actually the happiness that comes from cultivating the kind of practice that we're doing here too. So there are different kinds of insight, different descriptions of insight that can happen. So as you're you're starting to practice, you might find at first that different things come up in your experience, some of which you like and some of which you don't like. So there are mind states that are hard to be with and there are things that are easy to be with. So you could say there are uh, physical experiences that are pleasant and you enjoy. Like maybe from the description I just gave, you're thinking like, oh, I want more of that. Like that sounds good, right? Uh, But then there's also physical experiences that you don't like, you don't want to have. So mindfulness, as we've been saying, is actually this sense of presence, this sense of awareness that can meet all of those experiences. So mindfulness does not uh, discriminate like knowing only the pleasant ones and not knowing the unpleasant ones. So mindfulness can meet all of those. So there's one level of insight that is about seeing things on the first level uh, without this kind of judgment. And that includes, in fact, seeing judgment. So basically being able to see everything as it arises, as it is, right? Accepting that, knowing that as it is. So uh, here's a little demo of that, right? So here is your 
entire experience of your body and mind, all your emotions, all of your thoughts, uh, all of your uh, smells, sights, etc. And a lot of times for us, there's some of them that we like and some of them that we don't like. And so then we spend actually a lot of energy pushing away the ones that we don't like. So for those of you who can't see, this is just a blank piece of paper, so that's all, right? So for example, we don't like um, pain. So then basically any painful experience, we want to push that away. We want to close our eyes, we want to put blinders on. So I don't want that, right? Then we have experiences of emotions, and some of them we like and some we don't like. So I don't like sadness, got to push that away. Right? I don't like jealousy, and push that away. I feel uncomfortable with lust, don't want that there. Right? Don't like certain memories uh, from childhood, push that away. Right? Don't like bad smells, push that away. Right? <laughs> and so on, right? So you can see what's happening is that basically then, here you get to live in this little tiny shape here. And then you have to spend a lot of your other energy basically blocking out, putting on the blinders, pushing away everything else. Right? So the first level that we work with in the practice is, is being able to allow. So seeing this is stuff that it's hard to let in, it's hard to be with, it's hard to recognize, like, oh, okay, this comes up. So you know, as um, I think Pat was saying about rain, like recognize it, accept it, investigate it, right? Uh, try not to, to, to identify with it. So then when you don't identify it with, then it's like, okay, this can be sadness. Sadness just like this. This is what it feels like in the body, right? This is what pain is. Pain is just like this. This is what jealousy is like. It's just like this. This is what thought is like, just like that. Even unpleasant smells can be just a smell. It's just unpleasant. And you can actually be aware of the unpleasantness of the smell as distinct from the mind that is pushing it away. Right? The unpleasantness of the smell as distinct from your aversion to it, your hating it, and then your whole story about it. Right? So then we start to be able to live with less tension, having to spend less energy pushing things away, right? allowing things to arise. Now, in this process, too, there can be a lot of insight that can come on a psychological level. So some of you might have been having different memories and thoughts, and it connects the dots for you about something about your life, about understanding some pattern that you've had, of gaining greater insight into some aspect of uh, yourself or your family. Sometimes you feel like you've had all of those but for other people, right? <laughs> you have insight about other people and things like that, right? Um, and, you know, if an insight comes on that level and it seems true and helpful, okay, there it is. And then that's great. You can then let it go, right? There's a danger in then spending a lot of time machinating about it and thinking about it and digging around about it, right? Only because, you know, that is actually not necessarily a bad thing to do, but in this practice we're trying to do even more than that, right? So, uh, you know, there's a joke that like, yeah, you could spend a lot of time sort of unwinding all of your suffering from this life and your bad patterns from this life, but as most of you probably know in the Buddhist teaching, there's the idea of rebirth, like past lives. So then once you finish with this life, then you have to start on the next one and the next one, right? So it's really endless. 
So our recipe for happiness does not actually have to include unwinding everything, right? Even though there are actually some things that it's helpful to unwind. And when things naturally unwind, that's good. You know, let them unwind. So what we're up to here is actually something more about seeing into the nature of the whole show. So actually understanding the way in which reality is created. So understanding the way in which a sense of self is created. Understanding the way in which suffering is created. Understanding why it is that if life is just this flow of sense experiences, and if we could actually allow all of them to come through, just move through, right? Why is there suffering? Why is there difficulty? Why is there dukkha? So as a Dharma teacher, I think dukkha is actually our friend. So suffering, difficulty, strain, stress, distress, pain, grief, lamentation. It's not things that we go looking for, but as you know, it will come and find you. Sooner or later, it will find you. And it basically is our wake-up bell. So this is our like alarm clock uh, kind of calling us back to paying attention to the ways in which our world gets created, the ways in which reality gets created, and understanding suffering and happiness. So being able to see that everything that arises passes away. So being able to see that in our experience in such a way that no one could tell you that it's not true, you know. For you to understand that the emotion that comes through, the thought that comes through, the body experience, that there's no inherent personality in that. There's no me, there's no inherent I in that. It's all part of a flow of experience. So seeing into the non-solidity of yourself, of everything around you. Seeing into then what it is that we can actually really take refuge in, what it is that we can stand on, what it is that is reliable. So understanding the way that suffering gets created So I've given this uh, example in um, some of the groups that I had. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this is the story of the monk or nun goes into a cave and paints a picture of a tiger and then looks at the picture of the tiger and goes, ah, tiger, and runs out of the cave screaming. (laughs) So it's kind of a funny story. And when you hear it, it sounds ridiculous, right? Like, oh, you painted the picture of the tiger yourself, and yet you got scared of it, right? (laughs) But actually, when you are sitting here, minding your own business, sitting here breathing, no one is bothering you but yourself, how often does this actually happen in your mind, right? So thoughts arise, 
of something other in the imagined future, uh, in some uh, storyline of some kind or another, in some kind of script that we're writing. And we totally buy into that, right? Like we buy into that story. And then we have the concurrent, uh, what seem like uh, coherent and relevant emotions regarding that, much as the monk or nun did in the cave with the tiger, right? And we run screaming, right? So we cause ourselves fear, we cause ourselves sadness, we cause ourselves grief, right? By believing these thoughts that just arise and pass away. So watch your mind and notice how this happens. Notice how this happens all the time. So now it's not actually that you need to make your mind stop thinking or stop even doing this per se. You just have to see through it, right? You just have to be able to do your best to see that it's just a thought that's arising, right? Like remember, that's a painting. <laughs> you, know, you made that up, right? That, that was made up here and now. So this kind of freedom that was uh, is talked about and this kind of happiness also, I think it's helpful to note, is one that actually is about the happiness of the mind. Right? So actually the experience of the body is not going to change when you are a fully enlightened being. So meaning that if it's cold, your body will feel cold. Right? If it rains, you will get wet. If you eat something hot, it will burn your tongue, right? You'll hear sounds, you will smell smells, right? You will see things. All of that in those levels of the sense doors will not change. The place that liberation happens is in the mind. So the eradication of greed, of hatred, of delusion from our mind in relationship, in reaction to all of this that is naturally occurring. So I think it's helpful to remember that because there's so many ways in which you can find yourself machinating around as if that's not true. Right? So even here, if you consider your strategizing here for happiness, right? Like, if I get the right arrangement of cushions, then it'll be good, right? I'll be happy. Um, if I can get to the right walking meditation place in the, you know, early enough to get the best spot, right? Then it'll, I'll be happy here. There's so much strategizing we do, like which hook we're going to put the coat on, right? Um, where I like to cook my shoes, uh, what time I'll go down to the dinner, right? Like all these things. And it's not bad, you know, it's not bad to do these things. It's just good to notice, like, this kind of strategizing as if that's the way for happiness, right? Uh, as if all of this is really, like, the foolproof strategy to keeping us happy, right? So how can you act when you see this stuff? So just, like, have a lot of compassion for yourself, you know? 
I mean, like the Buddha who started to see this about how all of us are doing this all the time, putting so much energy into this kind of, like, you know, rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic kind of thing, right? <laughs> Just compassion, you know? It's like we don't understand. We're like pushing, pushing, pushing on this door that says pull, you know? That's like what we keep doing, right? Also like having a sense of humor in the mind, which is really like some dimension of compassion, I think, you know? Like see the ridiculous things that arise, you know? And take them with a grain of salt, And you may have noticed at this point that uh, the mind is not in your control, right? So that thoughts arise uh, without you scripting them. The content of them is not actually under your control. The mind is also shameless and will think anything, right? (laughs) You may have noticed this too, right? And the mind is a monkey mind, you know? It's just like, do this, do that. You try and like, hold it down here, it'll pop up here. You try and hold it down there, it'll pop up there, right? If you feel like you've gotten it down, it's like, I'm not going to engage in the content of thoughts. I understand this is about paying attention to the process. So I'll just notice thought, notice thought, notice thought. But then, out of the corner comes like, what about Dharma thoughts? I'll think about, right? I'll think about Dharma thoughts. That's a good thing to think about, surely, Right? I'll work it all out, right, on the level of thinking, right? That's the monkey mind popping up there, right? I'll think about it. I'll think my way into freedom, right, like that. Now, contemplation does have its place, certainly. So if you know that you are thinking about something, and if it is the right time that you've decided to think about it, then great, right? But during the explicit periods in which you've decided to pay attention with mindfulness to the process of this body-mind system arising. Don't get stumped by the monkey mind like that. Don't get duped by it. Right? And the mind is powerful. Right? So here we're uh, practicing, and practicing under sort of like laboratory conditions. right? And in the laboratory also, things can seem magnified too, right? So also, in case you, uh, you may not have noticed this, there's a phenomenon that happens on retreats oftentimes when you've been uh, here for a couple days when certain small things seem to like kind of get blown out of proportion in your mind, right? For better or for worse. So small things just take on huge epic proportions, right? So just see that and notice the patterns of your mind with that. So somebody takes the last banana, for example, right? And it seems like just a terrible, terrible crime, you know, like a terrible thing. And then you resent this person for a long time. And, you know, I mean, just like crazy things can happen in in your mind uh, when you're in this environment, right? Now, don't blame it on the environment because you brought the same mind that you had at home here, right? (laughs) So it's just the mind, right? But it becomes sort of more magnified here, so you can just see, basically, like, how uh, ridiculous it all is, right? So hopefully you can see it. Sometimes we get sucked in, and we're like, yes, I should plot revenge because of that banana. That's, you know, <laughs> that makes complete sense. I should spend days working on, you know. Uh, but hopefully sometime you come out of that dream, or 
you know, sometimes people come into the, the interview and then they try to talk about it and then while they're talking about it, they see how ridiculous it is. And it's like, oh my God, okay, you know. So whenever you catch yourself in that, I think it's good just to notice that, right, with compassion. And notice just the patterns of mind. So this is kind of like the laboratory in which you can see the conditions for the arising of greed, of hatred, of delusion, right? And the way that your mind is playing it out here is doubtless the way that your mind plays it out in all different situations in the external world, right? Maybe with different like social, uh, you know, lenses around it and because you could talk in other places, you play it out differently. But believe me, like whatever there is that's arising in your mind here, like that's part of the uh, what could arise or probably has arisen in the outside, right? So here's a good place to learn to work with it, to learn to see through it, right? to find some freedom if there is freedom to be had in it. So I was saying that, uh, you know, as a Dharma teacher, we actually like, uh, actually like dukkha sometimes and see that it's a really, uh, uh, can be a positive way to make you wake up. And it's said that uh, the human realm is actually, you know, of the different realms that's described in Buddhist cosmology, is actually the best place for potentially waking up because we have this mix of pleasure and pain. So if you're in a hell realm, it's, it's like too difficult. You know, it's like really too difficult to kind of poke your head up and gain some kind of insight, right? But if you're in the, the heavenly realms, then I consider it too good, basically. Like everything's too nice, so you also have no incentive to investigate and look around, right? So here in the human realm, you can't really get away with going along too long without suffering, right? A physical body will deliver that to you, uh, you know, the experience of people not acting according to your wishes will deliver that to you. Even the changing of the seasons and the weather will deliver that to you, right? There's some uh, great stories about this. Um, I spent time, some time practicing in monastery in uh, Sri Lanka. And um, in this monastery, we would... Uh, it was a meditation monastery, so we actually stayed in the monastery and did the kind of practice we're doing here. And then we would be offered food uh, by people who came to the monastery to offer food. And they would come and put it in our bowl and then we would eat it, right? And you notice when even there was like not that much choice, that still like there was some pickiness. Like, oh, I don't want the, uh, you know, fruit to get on top of the salad or, you know, I don't want this to get on top of that. I don't want, you know, you can notice like the mind moving like that, right? So one of my favorite stories about uh, food from a monastery is um, from the the tradition of uh, Ajahn Chah, who is this Thai master, and who was a teacher of some of the teachers here. So apparently the monks would go out on uh, alms round and uh, get food put into their bowls. And they, they also, I forgot to say, they also renounce eating after noon, right? So they basically get one meal a day. So you get one meal a day, you're psyched for your meal, right? One meal. So you get everything in the bowl, and then uh, apparently for a period of time, Ajahn Chah decided that what would happen then is everyone would have to dump their bowls into this big vat, and that he would stir everything around <laughs> like this, right? Or get some monk to do this, and then it would get like re-slopped into the bowls. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the... the uh, 
people I heard tell the story said, you know, they were like appalled. Like, you know, the one meal of the day that they had, like their one pleasure, and he's like ruining it by mixing up, you know, like whatever, the yogurt and the salty things and the sweet things and, you know. And then seeming to enjoy watching them trying to eat this, you know. So uh, uh, it's terrible, you know. Uh, but actually, I think it, I actually think that's great. You know, it's like, uh, and fortunately, we're probably not going to do that here to you. Right? Um, but you know, actually, in the mindfulness of eating, it definitely will make you not eat more than you need for your body, right? I mean, seriously, right? It will not make you eat out of greed when everything's all mixed together like that, and it gets mixed together in your stomach anyway, right? At some point, right? It just interferes with your sense of uh, taste pleasure, right? So, uh, you know, here at Spirit Rock, things are like pretty comfortable, pretty nice. You know, we usually don't mess with you in that way uh, too much, right? Um, but you notice that uh, the dukkha will come without you asking for it. So even if you try to sit, right, for a long period of time, the body will deliver dukkha to you. People will behave in ways that you don't want them to behave. Right? Uh, there will be sounds that you don't want to hear. Right? Uh, you might get arranged to have your uh, individual meeting at a time you didn't want to have it. Right? Uh, there's a long line in the bathroom. Right? Uh, you're having memories that you don't want to have. Um, you're feeling sad. You know? Any number of things get delivered to you that is actually difficult. Now, there's this great danger, I think, for us uh, constantly to be looking at it like um, this thing in front of me is an obstacle to my practice, right? So notice when this thought arises in your mind. You know, my meditation practice would be going so much better if only this thing were not here. And that could be this experience, it could be this person, it could be this weather, it could be this body, it could be this memory, and it's very easy to be like, I don't want that. Like, I want what's there. I want what that guy seems to be having, right? <laughs> like, I don't want what's here. But the way the Dharma works is like, you have to eat what's on your plate. <laughs> yeah. And what's on your plate is usually something really helpful for you to wake up. Right? So if you actually look at everything that's presented to you, not as like the obstacle to my practice, like, oh, when I get rid of this, I can actually do this really well. But this actually is my practice. You know? This is the thing that is right here for me to look at, learn from, understand suffering, right? work with, even struggle with, and see through. Right? Then when you master that, something else will be given to you. Right? Something else will be there. And I feel like in our, in our lives, in our practice, in some ways it's a, a, a gradual process of gaining insight through sifting through deeper and deeper layers of this dukkha, right? Actually seeing more and more refined ways in which uh, the mind creates suffering, in which there is difficulty, in which there is strain, there is stress, right? So noticing that, seeing that, and being able to let go of that. So the Buddha's recipe for happiness. So there's happiness of sense pleasures, can cultivate generosity, can cultivate our own conduct, ethical conduct. The connection now also with this to uh, concentration and insight. 
it's actually very difficult to have a settled mind and heart that leads to concentration, right? That leads to insight if your mind is very chaotic. So if there's a lot of regret, right? If you've done a lot of things that uh, cause you ripples in your mind. So one of my teachers said, if you feel like you want to develop your meditation practice and you actually don't want to pay attention to ethical conduct, it's like trying to row a boat that's still tied to the dock. So you might get so far, depending on how much rope you have, but eventually it's going to snag, right? So it's, they're really connected, this happiness uh, and from blamelessness, from ethical conduct, and then the ability to concentrate and have insight. Right? And one of the messages I want to give you with this talk about happiness also is that happiness and joy is really there for us, is actually part of our birthright. It's available for us. It's actually described as spiritual qualities in so many different dimensions of the teachings. So it's also not like by the by. It's not like it's not spiritual to enjoy things, right? So the dukkha is one side of it, the strain, the suffering, the stress. And the other side is actually the joy. And actually the more that we can open our eyes and open our ability to be with the suffering, the strain, the stress, the more we can be with the joy. The more we can be with the joy also can be the greater that we can actually open, be content and actually let in even more difficult experiences. So it supports each other. So I remember an experience I had when uh, one of my nieces was a baby where uh, I had this um, mobile and it had a lot of tropical fish on it. And uh, we placed it above her little crib and she was so happy about it. You know, she started flailing her arms and legs, you know, and just like, shouting with joy from uh, this mobile, right? And you probably have seen babies do this, right? It's just this very intense, natural thing. And all of us have access to that. All of us have had access to that. All of us have access to that, right? So how often, as an adult, do you actually let yourself feel that level of joy? All the way through, right? You don't need to flail your arms and legs. Yeah? <laughs> you could, but you don't have to. But actually allowing yourself to feel that kind of joy, happiness, pleasure all the way through your body. right? Like not stuffing it down. Like allowing that to go from your head to your toes. Right? And it can be from something as simple as like this fishmobile or seeing something in nature. you know, Or uh, seeing something beautiful or even just from a heart of kindness, of love. So the invitation for you also is to continue in your practice. So enjoy the sense pleasures when they're there. Try to be with them as they're there and try to let them go. If you can't let them go, notice the mind that's leaning and causing suffering, that's clinging. Continue to cultivate this sense of uh, the happiness from ethical conduct. So in some ways we're moving around here individually, but in other ways we're really all part of this community. Right? So being thoughtful, being sensitive to how your actions affect other people. 
right? Even in silence, uh, living from this sense of interconnection, right? Trying to do your best and understanding that we fail all the time in this. There are training precepts because there are trainings. When we fail, we learn from them and then we try to do better the next time, right? Also, what we're doing here is cultivating this happiness of concentration. So each time that we come back, that we take the discipline to not be lost in thought, come back, we're training the mind, training the heart to be steady, to be collected, to be focused. Now, a precondition for this kind of concentration is actually not trying hard. It's actually contentedness. So having a sense of contentedness allows the mind and heart to collect. And then cultivating this happiness of insight. Right? This happiness of insight, of understanding the process of how reality gets created. How our sense of self arises and passes away. Right? Seeing how we paint the tigers on the cave wall and then get scared by them. Right? Trying to learn from that and see through that again and again. So through seeing all of that can bring us to the highest happiness. So the highest happiness is actually the happiness which is beyond all changing circumstance. So there is a peace, there is a contentedness, there is a happiness that is to be found that is beyond all of the sense pleasures, beyond even concentration, which is something that is there under certain conditions and then goes. So this is what I wish for all of you. So I'll close with this poem by Rumi, a poet who knew joy very well. If you knew yourself for even one moment, if you could just glimpse your most beautiful face, maybe you wouldn't slumber so deeply in that house of clay. Why not move into your house of joy? and shine into every crevice. For you are the secret treasure bearer and always have been. Didn't you know? Thank you. So it's time for walking meditation, and you can walk in your house of joy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.